Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. It's been almost 10 years since the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office found more than 11,000 untested rape kits in an abandoned Detroit storage locker. Suddenly, the office had a colossal task on its hands and a duty to do whatever it could to bring justice for rape survivors. Now, a national organization called the Joyful Heart Foundation has certified the office to develop a statewide system for how to test rape kits. This has been one of the defining moments of Wayne County Prosecutor Kim Worthy's tenure in that office. And she joins us now for the hour to talk not just about rape kits, but also about the functions of the prosecutor's office, the funding of the prosecutor's office. And we are going to talk about criminal justice reform as it begins to unfold at a statewide level. As always, uh, we would love your uh, participation in this conversation as all always. Um, if you have questions for the Wayne County Prosecutor, uh, questions about legal proceedings in the county, questions about criminal justice reform or rape kits, as always, the number is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. But first, let me welcome Kim Worthy back to the studio here at WDET for Detroit Today. It's great to see you. Glad to be here. It's been a while. It has been a while. I was going to say, I couldn't remember the last time you and I actually sat down in the same place uh, to talk on this show. Um, I have no clue. I can't remember what I did yesterday. <laughs> it's, been, so. it's been years. <laughs> um, so let's start with the issue of rape kits and talk about how far we have come with this issue in the last few years and what it means for the Joyful Heart Foundation uh, to be sponsoring this work to develop a statewide system. Well, Joyful Heart has been with us since probably a couple years into it. And for those of you who do not know, Joyful Heart Foundation is a foundation that was founded Oh, gosh, about 20, 12 years ago now, I think. I think I'm right about that. By the actress who is the star, plays Olivia Benson on Law & Order SVU, Marishka Hargitay. And so they were doing work with sexual assault and domestic violence and child abuse way well beyond when we started on this. But when we started getting into it and working with them, then they use they have this issue as the, their main issue, their pillar issue. So... Um, we, we actually said we discovered these kids in 2009. Mm -hmm. um, this August, August the 8th, I believe, or the 9th, will be the 10th year, quote unquote, anniversary of this um, awful discovery. And we have since learned, and we had a pretty good idea then that this was a national issue. At first, I thought this was a Detroit only issue and that we were going to suffer our third major scandal in less than a year, you know, starting with the mayor and before that with the firearms issue we had in the fire and the at the crime lab. Mm -hmm. And so I could not believe it. And we, no one had any money. There wasn't a lot of support back then. Detroit was four years out from the largest municipal bankruptcy in the nation. And so the county wasn't doing particularly well at that time. And so we literally had to, I had to, go around to everybody I can think of, all the Detroit businessmen and women, every foundation I can think of, everyone, um, I asked for help. No one wanted to see me coming after a while. And people w wanted to help on this. They wanted to help. Some people could not help. Uh, they really wanted to help. And so we ended up doing a lot of work with the uh, federal government at the time. We started the Office of Violence Against Women. 
and a wonderful woman who at that time was the executive director of the Michigan Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault Prevention and Treatment Board, an arm of the DHHS. And she was able to hook us up with the federal government. That's how we got started. Later, as the years went by, we received the support from the from then Governor Schneider, um, then AG Bill Schuette in the Michigan legislature. And then when Warren Evans was elected, one of the first things he did was, and the Wayne County Commission, was provide a million dollars a year, um, every year, to support this cause. So it's been a long journey, mm-hmm. a long mm-hmm. journey. Uh, and do you feel like, I mean... Uh, so when this happened, um, I think everybody was was shocked by not just the number of uh, of kids that were involved, but by um, you know the, the the larger context, the the, the dismissive right. sort of nature of uh, you know maybe the most serious crime anyone can commit uh, outside of outside of murder um, that that it was handled this way. I know that we've done a lot to to fix. Um, you know the, the the process and the mechanisms for dealing with uh, these kits so that right. it's better. I, I wonder though what you uh, would make of the the kind of cultural changes that I think this really cried out. Yeah, for. the larger context, of course, is that violence against women doesn't matter. Um, it's not as important as things that happen to men or or other types of crimes where people pay attention to. I mean, it's a little hard not to pay attention to homicide or, or child abuse or, uh, you know, year, for years I didn't pay attention to domestic violence. Right. But they're paying attention to that now. So I consider sexual assault to be kind of the last bastion of uh, ignorance and uh, ignoring uh, the most, one of the most violent things that can happen to a woman. And these rape kits weren't just um, women's rape kits. They were, we had some men and some sure. children as well. But, of course, overwhelmingly they were... Um, from women, and overwhelmingly women of color, which was the other context to this, that if you are a victim of color, your life has less value in the criminal justice system. And I've said this many times, that's just true. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't find too many of these large numbers of untested abandoned rape kids across the country where most of them don't belong to women of color. So that's the other kind of side issue and very important issue. But uh, certainly rape culture was one of the biggest reasons why this occurred. Um, Police at the time felt very comfortable pushing these cases aside, trying to talk these victims out of prosecuting. Um, You know, these these kids now go back, some of them, over 40 years, over 40 years old. And so we're talking with a a slow shift now in culture. Um, Certainly people are looking at things differently uh, we've done a lot of work, and not just me. I mean, nationally, uh, statewide, locally, um, from prosecutors to victim advocates to to investigators to law enforcement agencies to our Wayne County Safe, our wonderful forensic nurses, to, like I said, Debbie Kane in her outfit, um, the Michigan Crime Lab, the Michigan State Police. So we've had a number, and of course, Joyful Heart, as, as was mentioned earlier. So we've had a number of partners that have come together and helped us work on this. And then again, uh, about three years ago, we, uh, we, we joined a, a consortium of wonderful women, the Michigan Women's Foundation, now known as Michigan Women's Future, and of course the Detroit Crime Commission. We partnered to form Enough Said, Enough Sexual Assault in Detroit that has helped us raise a whole lot of money to get us in the position now where we can say that all the kits are tested. Yeah. Um, and back to this question of of culture, culture mm-hmm. in the police department, culture 
in other parts of the criminal justice system. Um, do you think that this was a wake-up call that, that has inspired a change? To that culture? I don't know if at the time that this of discovery back in 2009 it was a wake-up call. I can't say that. I, I don't know exactly when it became, um, you know, politically popular to support this issue, and that's, you know, frankly what happened um, in many cases. We had, of course, the dedicated people that I'd mentioned before, but we had people then that came on board later, and we appreciate certainly their support, no question about it, and some people just weren't in a position to help. Um, but uh, the rape culture is still there. It's mm. still one of the lowest, if not the lowest, reported crime. Uh, it still receives short shrift in many ways uh, in many departments. There are still cities across, major American cities across this country who have discovered the same issue who are doing nothing about it. And I, don't, I can't fathom, I can't wrap my brain around that because mm. at the end of the day, no matter how you feel about it, each of these kids belongs to a victim who was denied justice. Right. And certainly our focus has always been uh, myself, my, my collaborators, everybody that worked with us has always been victim-focused, um, an issue. And so we want to make sure that first and foremost, we, we try to deliver justice to as many victims as we can. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today. On Victim-centered, I should say. Yeah. Victim-centered. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest for the hour is Wayne County Prosecutor Kim Worthy. We are talking right now about where we stand with all of the issues with rape kits that we learned about in 2009 here in uh, the city of Detroit and Wayne County, uh, all the reform that has taken place to make sure that those kits are treated uh, more consistently and effectively to bring justice to rape survivors. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, uh, give us a call. Tell us what are your questions about the rape kits, uh, the way they're handled here in Wayne County. Do you have another question about accountability or legal proceedings mm -hmm. in the county? Uh, as always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Um, Kim, I want to talk about this national certification. What does that mean for your office and the state's ability to do all of this a little better? Well, they have a, a six pillars of reform, Joyful Heart did, after they took this on as their main issue. And again, we were working hard in Michigan before they did that, but then when they, had, when they came up with their six pillars of reform, we uh, tried to work very hard to meet them, and we were already doing some of this work. And one of them is, is of course, getting all the kids tested, and that has happened. That was has been happening since 2009. And another was making sure that there was statewide reform, making sure that everywhere across the state there was an inventory or an audit, if you will, to find out if any other parts of the state had any kind of untested rate courts. Kids, of course, that they did. And then once that's discovered, um, we also, and I'm not necessarily saying this in order, but we also recognized very early on um, that we needed uh, reform legislatively, that we wanted legislation to make sure that all kids were tested. And that happened. That was signed back in, I believe, 2016. I think I'm right about that. And the law in Michigan now is that statewide, not just in Detroit, that when there is a rape kit done, that local agency that has that local law enforcement agency that has jurisdiction must pick that kid up within 14 days. They have another 14 days to get that kit to the Michigan State Police Laboratory. Um, there is one caveat when it comes to the lab: if there are the resources available, they have 90 days in which to test that kit. Mm. And then, of course, the kit must be picked up by law enforcement once the kit has been tested. 
And so that law, that is the law of the land in Michigan. Um, we also wanted to make sure that all kits were tested. And that was another pillar of reform as well. So I have to say that Michigan passed their 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 law of getting all the kids tested uh, well before many other states, and we were we're very proud about that. We wanted to make sure that we didn't have this problem again. You can attack it now, and we want to make sure that we had things in place to make sure ten years from now, twenty years from now, we didn't have another backlog. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways was to make sure that all kids were tested and all kids must go to the lab within the prescribed time period. Another thing that was another pillar reform that we started working on long ago. We recognized very early on, almost immediately back in 09, that if you can track a package on the internet that you order from an online company and know where it is at every bend and turn, we should be able to track rape kits through the criminal justice system in one state. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't want to reinvent the wheel, so we partnered with and did a pilot project with um, UPS, the United Parcel Service, because why, why reinvent the wheel? Go to the logistics experts. And they worked with us and came up with a plan very quickly it was funded by Dan Gilbert and company at Quicken Loans and done pro bono by UPS. Didn't pay, cost the taxpayers a dollar. This was a pilot program in Detroit we did for 16 months. And during that 16-month period, we knew where every rape kit was at every bend in term. And what would happen is they have their scanners. Every rape kit has a barcode. When that kit was used and performed, it would be scanned. When it was picked up by the Detroit police, it would be scanned. When it was taken by the Detroit police to the crime lab, the crime lab would scan it. And when it was picked back up by the Detroit police department, it would be scanned again. So we knew exactly where that, that kit was. And so back when the law that I was talking about earlier passed in the state of Michigan, there was also a sexual assault evidence commission that was created. And one of the mandates of that commission was to make sure the state had a statewide tracking system for all rape kits. And I'm, I was on that commission, did a lot of work, um, and certainly it's, we now have that, that uh, tracking system. It, was, it started to be up and running last year. It was piloted in Battle Creek with the Battle Creek Police Department. It is web-based, mm. and, so, and that means in Battle Creek when it first started, the, when they picked up the, the uh, rape kit from whatever entity they were using that does their um, kits there, it was entered into the system. And when they took it to the lab, it was entered into the system. When they picked it up, it was entered into the system, much like the pilot program we did here. And so now I'm happy to say that uh, southeastern Michigan was always going to be the last part of the state to go online because we're the largest area and they wanted to make sure all the bugs were worked out. And we are going to be giving, beginning, beginning our training here in southeastern Michigan this, I think, early next month. And they expect the state to be fully live by the end of the summer. Wow. So we were the first state, I believe, in the country to start working on a tracking system. Um, during the interim, there were, I think, five or six other states that now have state tracking systems. So we're very proud about that. Yeah. So there really is no excuse in the state of Michigan to lose a rape kit and not know where it is. And the other, perhaps most important thing about our tracking system, and it was our dream a long time ago, it has a victim portal where um, the victim of that sexual assault can now go in that portal and find out where his or her rape kit is. Yeah. So we're giving them that information as well. They can keep track of they what's, can keep track. what's happening. Right. Uh, we've had a couple of, of calls uh, asking for an explanation of what a rape kit is. And mm-hmm. I guess uh, you and I started this conversation because, uh, you know, we are sort of immersed in this kind of information all the time. And right. we made an assumption that everybody would understand can you just sort of quickly yes. explain what a rape kit is and why it's so important to a he, rape investigation? Here in Wayne County, we're very fortunate to have Wayne County Safe, the Wayne County Sexual Assault Forensic Examiners. 
and they do all the rape kits in the county. And a rape kit is a box with a barcode, and in it it has a collection of envelopes and plastic envelopes and swabs. And a rape kit exam takes anywhere from four to ten hours. Most of them don't take four to ten hours, mostly, mostly four to six hours, where an examiner will take uh, hairs, pluck hairs from all the intimate areas of a, of a, of a victim, hair from the head as well, from the vaginal area, take swabs from the mouth, any areas of the skin, the breasts, every area of the skin will take uh, swabs also. They will take fingernail clippings as well. And they want to take any information or any potential evidence from a, a survivor's body that will help once it is all collected uh, um, find their perpetrator. So they, it's an exam where, again, they take uh, swabs of hair and saliva and clippings and and all kinds of things it's from way every of, every area into the body. Yeah, it's a way of collecting and all collecting of the available it, evidence and, that and you putting would have. It, yeah, putting it in the box. Putting it in a box, right. And the rape kit box. And so that's what it is. And then what is, what ho- what is hoped is when that kit is taken to the lab, the forensic scientist will be able to uh, pull all that evidence and, and, and from that evidence come up with a genetic profile that they can then enter into the CODIS system, the combined DNA index system. We have a statewide and federal system that we enter into the profiles. And from that, from those profiles when they are entered, they can be two kinds of CODIS hits. One can be a positive identification. In other words, when the profile is entered into the system, it can hit and give you the name of the person that that DNA belongs to. And the other kind of, of hit is a, a case-by-case association. So briefly, that means if there's a sexual assault in Detroit and they take uh, DNA or get this profile from bed sheets or from the body of a victim and they enter it into CODIS, we have the profile that's entered into it, but we don't know who it belongs to. So if by any chance there is a, maybe a sexual assault in Arizona where they also have a rape kit entered into their system and into the federal system, then we, have, we can have a match so we know we have a serial rapist, but we don't know who it is. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and to, to demonstrate the power of these kits, uh, I, I want to highlight another call that we got from Margaret and Novi. Uh, she didn't want to go on the air, but she wanted to thank you because her daughter was one of the sexual assault survivors oh. who got her rape kit tested twenty years wow. later. Yep. And I mean, I think that that really speaks to the power of of this evidence. Twenty years later, you're able to go back in some cases and bring justice to people uh, who were denied it. Yes, and even even though I've been doing we've been doing this for for a very long time, I still get goosebumps when I hear stories like that. And when I talk to my to the investigators and prosecutors on, on my team in my office. And, you know, just, to, just this morning, I received, you know, between last night and this morning, I received, I think, two or three emails saying we're, we're, we had another match and we've done the investigation and we are now charging this person for a sexual assault that happened 5, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to continue our conversation with Wayne County Prosecutor Kim Worthy. We're going to talk about criminal justice reform as it is unfolding statewide here in Michigan and what effects that might have in Wayne County. Stay with us and stay with us on phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. (laughs) 
This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. My guest this hour is Kim Worthy, the prosecutor here in Wayne County. We're talking about the work of that office, the funding of that office. We just were talking about the pioneering work that Kim Worthy has been doing, uh, making sure that rape kits are handled way more consistently and effectively here in Wayne County and now statewide here in Michigan. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, uh, give us a call, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will try to work you into the conversation. Um, Kim, I want to talk now a little about criminal justice reform, which does seem to be uh, a priority for Governor Gretchen Whitmer. She's already done a number of things uh, that that would change the way we deal with offenders. I want to start with uh, just yesterday, her signing a bill to allow for medically frail inmates to be paroled. I wonder what your reaction uh, is to that idea and to the general idea that uh, that we ought to treat perpetrators, uh, inmates, uh, differently than we do now. I'm not sure what iteration of the bill that was signed, but I know that's something that the Prosecuting Attorneys Association of Michigan has been working on for quite a while. And it's a bill that's been around for, for quite a while. But again, I don't know what, exactly the iterations of that. And certainly we went back and forth because we wanted to make sure, and that's what we try to do. When, it, when, when a bill is introduced that has to do, has criminal justice components, it's usually brought to our organizations and others. And we will indicate, oftentimes seeking our support, we will indicate whether we support it or not and whether certain changes should be made. And that's certainly something that we supported. Like I said, I don't know what iteration. And certainly if, the, if it can be shown that a person is indeed by a doctor and med- medical personnel, if they're shown indeed that they are um, frail and ill or terminal, then that's something we can we certainly can get on board with. But we had different steps and considerations and stipulations. And again, so I'm not sure what iteration was signed. Before we go any further, can I just just finish up on the rape kits? Can, sure. can I just tell tell your audience that we had now have 174 convictions, and that represents not just uh, 174 victims, but some, many of these rapists are serial they rapists. They were serial, right? And so there are many more than that. We have over a hundred and and that's since 2009. 2009. Right? Yeah. We have over 180, I'm sorry, over 800, over 800 serial rapists that were identified in our project, wow. just in one project, in one city, in one state. And um, our CODIS hits that I was talking about earlier, the DNA hits, also hit on crime scenes in 39 other states. So there just were, just from our project in Detroit, there are only 10 states in the United States that haven't been touched by by the work that we did here in terms of that. And, you know, just the last thing I want to say is that certainly these uh, DNA hits, these CODIS hits from these rape kits help law enforcement across the country solve not just sexual assaults, but homicides and armed robberies and child abuse and home invasions and car thefts. So it's a, a great tool for law enforcement. But going back to your question, and, and I'm very proud of all the people that worked on that the, sure. the globally on that. On, 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 we, and we continue. We continue to charge cases almost every day. So, uh, so that's my comment on that. So that, certainly that's something that the statewide organization supported and we worked with the Michigan legislature on that for quite a while. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, so this this medically frail uh, bill, uh, according to the the coverage, says is it will allow the Department of Corrections to parole seriously ill and medical medically frail prisoners so they can obtain care at medical facilities instead of prison facilities. Yeah, I know um, one of the things we were fighting for is we want to make sure that the judge also had a say. Yeah. 
and um, people within in the in the prosecutor's office also had to say because you have to understand that just the sheer brutality and grotesqueness of a lot of work, a lot of uh, cases that we deal with, and no one is denying that 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 prisoners should receive appropriate care. We just want to make sure that, that the proper mechanisms were in place uh, when, in fact, a petitions such as these were made. Mm. Uh, and and I, I know for you, this is this is a kind of a tricky space, right? So, uh, and I'll give you an example. I mean, you have really cheered recent decisions to compensate people who were wrongfully convicted and spent, you know, decades behind bars. Yes. But you've also been criticized for refusing to admit fault when people your office has convicted are later exonerated. And I, I think that's a really interesting uh, uh, right. description of the, you know, this this tension that exists for you as the prosecutor. I get a lot of criticism, criticism but I think right. that, that particular criticism was well before we founded our CIU, our Conviction Integrity Unit. But mm-hmm. this, is, this, was, this was my issue and still is my issue, even with our Conviction Integrity Unit. We want to make sure, and I don't think any person, and I'll just speak from my office, but I personally don't think any prosecutor's office should be afraid to have a unit like this. And it, it can be difficult, it can be uncomfortable, but we shouldn't be afraid to want to review our cases when there have been convictions if there is credible, if there are credible claims of, of new evidence and credible, a credible claim of innocence. And certainly that should be done. However, I think it should be noted very clearly that not all the work that we're going to do are true exonerations. And exoneration is a case like Richard Phillips, where, mm-hmm. where very recently, even though he had been serving time for 45 years, very recently, within the last year or so, we learned that he was not the person responsible for this particular crime. Um, and so that's an exoneration. Uh, many of the cases that we have done, there have not been, they're not people who are not guilty. They're people that deserve, for whatever reason, a new trial. For example, if a lot of the cases where we find that maybe there was an incomplete police investigation or we find um, um, medical, not medical, I'm sorry, forensic evidence that may not have been available at that time. So we have much more defined capacity to test DNA, for example. So we may find that there was insufficient evidence in the time based on new forensic practices that we, and we think there should be a new trial. In those cases, th- those cases are different from exonerations. And I, don't, I, I am not going to apologize for a case where a person, we certainly agree that they, they um, deserve a new trial, but we feel that they're factually guilty. So the exonerations, certainly those, those defendants that served time and they were not guilty, mm. they absolutely deserve apologies. And, and there's nothing we can do to bring their time back. There's nothing we can do. Of course not. And we support those positions for compensation for our exoneration. So some of the biggest support that they have comes from my office when we feel that they should be compensated. When you feel because they are truly when they are, proven are truly, innocent. But if they are not innocent, uh, factually, but they deserve a new trial, then certainly that's a different issue. And then when there's a new trial, if they're found not guilty, that, that may be a different story. Yeah. But um, I think people need to realize what the differences are. Yeah. If uh, you are factually guilty of a crime, I do not think you deserve an apology. If you are not guilty of a crime, you certainly do. And the justice system deserves, you deserve to be compensated for that. So, so let's talk about another specific case, uh, Devante Sanford. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, some people say that, that the way that story unfolded suggests that you knowingly allowed an innocent man to stay behind bars for years. How, how do you answer I that? I knowingly involved? No, no one knowingly knew that, that. First of all, let me just say the position of our office is, 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 is different than most. And that was a situation where we felt he deserved a new trial. Mm-hmm. 
uh, because of some police misconduct and because of some perjurious um, testimony and the way some things were done in that case by law enforcement. So we felt a new trial was deserved. Um, we could not, after all these years, feel that we could in good conscience go forward because of the perjurious uh, testimony. And so we're not going to spend taxpayer dollars nor put a defendant, whether we believe he's innocent or not, through a trial when there has been perjury that has occurred in that trial. So we felt very strongly we could not go forward, that he deserved a new trial, mm -hmm. and that we would not go forward on that trial. So, um, and, and we should we should say for listeners who, who aren't necessarily familiar with this case, this was a 14-year-old a uh, who was questioned, interrogated. He wasn't 14. He was not 14? No, he wasn't 14. Okay. How, how old was he when I don't he remember was? how he was, but okay. he wasn't 14. That's what the, uh, the, the news story that I'm reading here says, that, uh, that Michael Russell, who's the the police officer who interrogated mm. him, he, he was 14, uh, after, a, after a quadruple homicide. I mean, let's be clear, this was... Uh, it was a quadruple a, homicide, a, and what is not... And one of the things in, in that case, which, which is still disturbing to, to our office, is there was a, a eyewitness there as well that observed um, things, that, and that seemed to get short shrift. But let me just say, in the end, because of the way the case was handled, we agreed that there should be a new trial. And then, when, and then we deserved, like I said, we didn't go forward on that trial once we found, out, I about, think once the, we found out about the perjurious testimony. Right, yeah. I mean, I think the the, the, the Which I will never do in a case, which, unless, there's other test, unless there's other evidence that, that overcomes that. Right. And there wasn't in this case. Yeah. Uh, um, is, is, this, um, uh, is this sort of an example, though, of the kind of thing that this conviction integrity unit might have gotten after Faster, or, or if we had a conviction integrity right. unit, maybe so. Back then, in other maybe words, so. yeah, maybe so. But again, um, we dealt with the evidence as swiftly as, swiftly as we got it, um, as swiftly as we could through the appellate process. And so, uh, if we had had a conviction integrity unit at the, at the time, our policies and procedures are different, such that you can appeal right to them. And so, the, it may have been different time wise. I don't know. I can't predict what what could have happened. Yeah. Okay, my guest again, is, we weren't uh, going to go forward on that with the evidence that was later discovered. My guest is Kim Worthy, the Wayne County prosecutor. We're talking uh, right now about criminal justice reform, several issues at the state level that Governor Gretchen Whitmer is uh, pushing to try to change the way we deal with inmates and uh, deal with uh, convicting, convicting people. Um, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us what your reaction to is to stories of innocent people being locked up for years or for decades. Uh, where are we failing when these things happen? Uh, as always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. Uh, you can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will try to work you into the conversation. Let's go to Casey and Lapierre. Casey, what's on your mind? I, I, you know, as appalling as the untested rape kits are to me, I think the other thing that's appalling is how, and I'm a white guy, but uh, these white affluent males are getting off in these just incredibly light sentences when they're convicted of rape. This happened in my hometown of Alpino, the uh, junior player uh, hockey team, a kid that was on a hockey team up there that was convicted of rape and got let off with just, I think it was like you know, a few months sentence mm -hmm. and probation. And mm -hmm. it's just to me, it's just so appalling. I just wanted to kind of pose that comment to the prosecutor, and I know that's more of a judge thing. Right? Yeah, that you know, I, those, I can't speak to how other jurisdictions handle their cases, 
and the considerations that go into them. I can say that um, in our case, in our cases in Wayne County, um, we make certain decisions, charging decisions. We, in most cases, make sentence recommendations and sentence agreements sometimes as well. Um, but the judge is the, alter, is, is the ultimate person who decides how much time is spent. So I don't know if the prosecutors in Alpena felt a different way and wanted more time. I, I do not know. I don't know the facts of those cases. But I think we can all, we've all heard appalling stories across this country about the short sentences and the no sentences that some, some very serious rapists are getting. You know, I, the, in the Stanford swimmer, for example, is a case that comes to mind and how, um, if what everything we've read is true, how, in fact, appalling that case was. But we really, there really has to be uh, pay, attention paid to rape culture. Again, it's a crime that, that happens to mostly women, which is, I think, one of the reasons why it's not taken seriously sometimes. It's a crime where there should be um, long punishment if the facts deserve, certainly, and so, and hopefully with this whole with the Me Too movement and with the the national problem of untested rape kits, where uh, shot uh, shot light, spotlights are being shined on this issue, I hope people will take more time to examine and judges as well the length of the sentences and make sure that they they um, they are they fit the crime. Um, but you're right; some of the cases I hear about are appalling. But I'll be the first to say I also don't know the facts like the person the department or the prosecutor's office handling it, what the facts are. Mm. But that is a very common problem because of the rape culture that exists in this country. Yeah, I mean, I think that gets to this larger question of how these crimes are seen, not just by a, you know one part of the criminal justice system, but by all parts of it, by the police, uh, by the prosecutors, and, and by the judges. One of the things that, that I was uh, absolutely blown away by uh, as you were digging into um, uh, digging into the, 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 the untested rape kits and we were seeing uh, police reports from mm-hmm, yes. some of the crimes that had happened, the way in which the officers were describing the women who were involved, the way they were describing the crimes that took place was was beyond dismissive. It was beyond dismissive. And, and what, what, um, what you're referring to is there were actually cases where when we back, went back and pulled these files that happened, you know, years and years ago, uh, law enforcement felt comfortable writing in the report, you know, and, and, and I'm, I'm, qu- I'm quoting, sure. um, this bitch is lying. She's a heifer. She, um, she, and making judgments on cases that hadn't been investigated. Her clothes are too clean, so she couldn't have been raped. She could have wanted it. She, sh- she probably wanted it. And all kinds of just horrible things that were being said about someone who had the courage to come into a police department and make a report. And being dismissed as her case, like she didn't matter. Her life didn't matter. Nothing about her mattered. She, and they, you know, she was a piece of garbage. And they didn't care about her case. And this is one of the reasons why um, I have said publicly many times that I think a lot of it has to do with women, of, that these were mainly women of color, women that may have been in the sex trade, women who um, were, were considered to be uh, below middle class, women who seemingly no one cared about them, women who they could get away with disparaging in this way. And so it was a, it's a sad, sad state of affairs that we've been dealing with for years. I'm glad to say that, uh, that it's changing. Uh, we are trying to get law enforcement trained up, prosecutors trained up. I'd love to see judges trained up. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's appalling the way that some of these um, victims were treated. It's beyond appalling if you had seen what I've seen through, and it's not just one report, many reports yeah, yeah. that were written down. 
again, uh, thanks very much for the call and the question. Let's go to uh, Linda in Midtown. Linda, welcome to Detroit today. You there, Linda? I want to ask about pretrial detention. I think there was a report by the ACLU like a month ago talking about how our bail system punishes the poor. And there's a lot of people who are locked up before they get to trial just because they can't afford to get out of jail mm-hmm. um, while they wait for their trial. I want to ask what um, the prosecutor's position is on this issue and whether any changes are going to be made. I know other states like New York and a couple of other places are actually eliminating bail for, for low-level offenses completely or trying to reduce the use of it, except, you know, except leaving out violent offenses. So I really want to know if there's anything we're doing about that while there's people just sitting around in jail waiting I, for trial. Yeah, I am not at this point a proponent of complete elimination of bail. I think that cases or, or bond cases should be, there certainly is abuse in the system. There's no question about it. And it's all a part of plim, uh, criminal reform. And I know my, our statewide organization is, is working on that issue as well. Um, and we will we will comment on and weigh in on any kind of bill that comes forth on this issue. But certainly, no question about it, there are abuses. There are abuses based on a person's race, based on a person's crime. And so, again, criminal justice should be individual. It should be bail should be set based on the the offense that is that is that is uh, that is allegedly being committed and other factors as well. And there certainly shouldn't be any wholesale. Um, giving a bail um, based on anyone's skin color or their position in life or their economic status. So we are willing to, and I am personally willing to look at any kind of proposal that comes forth, and I'm frankly expecting some kind of proposal to come forth. So, so, so certainly I think it needs to be reformed, but I am not a proponent at this time of, of complete elimination. There are going to be cases that come forward where there needs to be bail. So, so I, I think this is a question not of intent, but of effect, right? Uh, if you're a judge and you have two defendants in front of you uh, or, or two people who charged with the same crime, let's say, uh, and you you say for both of them that their bail is going to be $5,000 or $10,000, if one of them has resources to be able to uh, to, 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 to meet that, uh, that bail, they get out of jail uh, while they await trial. If the other doesn't, uh, then that's a sentence that essentially they're going to serve. I don't have a problem with a judge setting a personal bond or a very, very low cash bond for when it's appropriate. I have no problem with that at all. And certainly you have certain offenses where there should not be uh, any bond at all. There should not be any high cash bond, certainly. And that's why it's a, I think it's a slippery slope and we have to make very sure that we're not going to the other end. And we have, for example, we have a lot of cases on the other end where people are giving bonds that are much too low and they get out and reoffend. And now we have a more serious crime or someone that would not have been victimized if the bond had been proper. So the whole system needs to be taken a look at, not just the, the, the cash bond system as well. So, so I mean, I, yeah, I, I guess for me, though, the question is whether it works at all. If, if the system is rife to that kind of double standard through nobody's intent, uh, just because uh, people have different means to be able to, to stay in, uh, stay out of jail or, or get or, or stay in based on uh, uh, their, their means, doesn't that suggest that the system itself is, is the problem? That's rampant through the whole system, though. 
And it's not just in the bail part of it. And that's what we were talking about earlier. If you tend to be affluent, if you tend to have means, if you tend to know the right people, if you certain, if you happen to be a political person or have status in some other kind of way, your case is always treated differently. And that's what I've been talking about through the whole threat of the rape kits. If, if you are a victim of color, your case and your 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 cause is taken is taken less seriously. So it's not just the bail part of the system. It's it's prevalent through the whole system as well. And that's why we're we're trying to te- to work through that in all these issues. I think this, the system should be reformed. There's just no question about that. I'm not going to sit here and say it shouldn't be. But I also don't think that the, the extreme example, and if you look at some of these states that have supposedly limited, eliminated bail, it's not in all cases. So let's, let's be clear on that. And you may hear a five-second soundbite that this state has completely eliminated bail, but when you go look at the, the laws and the rules and the statute of that state, that just doesn't turn out to be true. They have made some significant reforms. And I think significant reforms need to be made here as well. But I will never be a proponent of a system that is absolute on all sides of the table. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Wayne County Prosecutor Kim Worthy. We'll talk about the funding issues that still exist in the prosecutor's office. Stay with us on Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest this hour is Wayne County Prosecutor Kim Worthy. We're talking about a number of different issues that uh, are going on in the prosecutor's office. Yeah, I just uh, want, to be, want to be clear, too. On, on, sure. on, I think people obviously don't know. A lot of this is a, is a, is a problem because people are just are not aware. And there are many cases now today where we agree to no bond because so there's a tether. You're going there's a, back to the cash yeah, bail. Question. Yeah, there's a ro- there's a robust tether system that I don't think people know about. Mm-hmm. So we have agreed to no bond in a lot of cases now because we are we believe in the integrity of the tether process. So just so people know, there are there there are many people that are not in the Wayne County Jail because right. they're on tether awaiting trial. But at the same time, that I mean, we agreed to the Wayne County Jail is full of people yep. who have not been convicted of anything. They are charged. They are yeah, they and, are awaiting trial. We also I'm on a, I'm I'm on a new commission that's been formed that where we're working with uh, the VETA Institute, and we're looking at all those issues as well. So there, all the stakeholders are currently at the table. We have our next meeting next week. Who are looking at all of those issues? People that are in the jail that shouldn't be the length of time in, in jail. So there's a study that's being that's going to be commissioned to look at all that that we certainly are a part of. Okay, uh, I, I want to change the subject here a, a little bit. And as always, callers three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones. Um, I want to talk some about funding in uh, mm-hmm. in your office. Um, talk about how much uh, you have in terms of resources to do the job of prosecutor in the largest county here in in Michigan. You and I have had conversations in the past yes. about real concerns you had about uh, that funding. Is that getting better? It is getting better. Ever since the the executive was elected, it's getting better. He under, and I, like I said yesterday on um, when I was speaking publicly yesterday. Um, he gets the issue. He understands it. Um, and he, the, he and the Wayne County Commission have been working with us now. In fact, we're in budget season now. The, it, the, the issue is twofold. We do not have enough resources. We are not properly resourced. Um, when you look at all the other offices across the country, we're very poorly resourced. Um, but the other issue is something that also the commission and the CEO are working on with me, and that's we have a real retention problems. And we, 
everybody wants to come to Wayne County because they know they can get the experience. They can they can try uh, homicide cases within a few years. Sometimes less than that. They can if they're if they're very good and diligent. You can you're in trial every day. You can do if you're in a courtroom. You can do twenty trials or more in a month, and you can get that experience. The issue that we have is the pay the salary structure that really needs working on. And also, we have other prosecutors' office. We have the federal agencies. We have law firms. We have um, many lawyers across the state that look to us because they know a lawyer that has two or three years of experience, five years of experience in my office, can come out and can try anything in court. And so, what they do is they come and they and they offer them twenty thousand, twenty five thousand, thirty thousand dollars. In one case, seventy thousand dollars more than I can pay them on our salary structure. So we have a real deep issue with retention right now that we're working on. Mm-hmm. Um, but even on top of that, we uh, always need more resources. We always want to be more diligent, and especially with um, certain things that are happening around the criminal justice system and with, with criminal justice reform that has to happen. There are changes that need to be made, but we need the resources to rise up and meet those changes. If you want us to do, and I think we do the best job that we can, we do a great job. I have a very talented staff. But again, um, when, when our cases are scrutinized, you have to realize at the same time that we have not even enough trial prosecutors to fill the trial courtrooms, or we, we don't have enough homicide prosecutors, or we don't have enough child abuse prosecutors. And there's a high learning curve when, you come, when it comes to homicide and child abuse and domestic violence and, and very serious cases. So we have to be properly resourced to be able to do our job as well. So how do we how do, we do that? What's, well, what's the... we, we submit our budget every year. And this year I have, you know, a couple of years ago, my priority was a the CIU unit, the Conviction Integrity Unit that we've just been talking about, where we look at uh, claims of, of actual and new claims of actual innocence when we want to investigate those cases. It's very investigation heavy. It takes a lot of time to do these cases. I think we have 600 cases now and four lawyers in that unit. So one of my priorities this year is to beef up that unit as well. I have for the last couple of years, I wanted to have uh, a, some directed human trafficking prosecutors. We are third, depending on what you look at, third or fourth or fifth in the nation when it comes to how we deal, how we don't deal properly with human trafficking in this area. So we want to focus on that. Those cases tend to be hundreds of thousands of, not hundreds of thousands, thousands of documents and cases you put together. They tend to be quite complicated. They're very investigation heavy. We don't have a resource person for that. We have a unit that deals with those cases along with all the other sexual assault cases. So my, um, so I have Besides just getting properly resourced, I, I want to. I'm I'm asking for a human trafficking prosecutor. I'm asking for more prosecutors in my conviction integrity unit. We're asking for more SVU prosecutors. Period. So we do, for example, people may not know this, anywhere from six thousand to eight thousand cases of domestic violence per year. Well, ten lawyers handle all those cases, and there are American Bar Association standards for defense lawyers, and they're not supposed to have more than three hundred felonies in a year, for example. And we're doing more than a thousand per prosecutor. So it's time for the state to properly look at the prosecutorial services, look at the way they're resourced, because this is a problem across the state. And so you can't expect us to do the job that you expect us to do if we're not properly resourced. So again, we do the best we have with what we have. We have extremely talented and dedicated people, but we could always use more resources. So we always go and ask, and we, we advocate, and we're very aggressive about it. And, but at the same time, it cannot be lost that we have a Wayne County Commission and a CEO that's willing to work with us on, this issues, on these issues. Uh, before we run out of time, I also want to ask you about uh, Attorney General Dana Nessel's attempt to reorganize the investigation into the Flint water crisis. Originally, 
she said she wanted you to take over that investigation. Uh, is there any chance that you would do that? I am on the investigation. You are doing that. Yes, along with, along with Fadwa Hamoud, who is the uh, Solicitor General. So I'm not going to talk about any of the work that we're doing. Yeah. Um, and um, that will become known when it, when it can become known. So I'll certainly, you've never known me ever to talk about <laughs> ongoing investigations. Other no. people may do that, but I don't. So we are working on that as well. Yeah, well, I, I'm just curious, though, about if you can talk at all about um, just your impression of that uh, that work. I mean, this is this is something that's gone on for a long time now in this state. A lot of people think it should be concluded uh, more quickly than it has been. A lot of people think there should be more dire consequences for some of the people who are who are targets of it. Um, uh, give me an idea of the the, the thinking that uh, led to you saying, "Hey, I think I can." Let me just let me just help. let me say a couple of things because you know you, we just finished talking about how we are poorly resourced, and yeah. now, you, now we're talking about a case that is happening in another, another jurisdiction. The attorney general's office has been very uh, generous. So when we provided a prosecutor to work on this project on the team, they provided a prosecutor to us to absorb the work that's being done. So just so that's clear. And I had to make sure my funding source understood that as well. (laughs) So we are getting um, reciprocal resources to work on that as well. So um, a one-for-one thing. So let me just say this. Um, And I think that, and I don't want to speak for Ms. Hamoud, the Solicitor General, but I think we can say very clearly that if this had been handled properly from the beginning, um, it would not still be going on. Let me just say that. Okay. And so we continue to work on that, and that's all I'm going to say about this about the case because I'm not going to comment on what we're doing in this in this investigation. Okay. All right, Kim Worthy, prosecutor here in Wayne County. It is always great to sit and talk with you about these issues. Thanks very much for coming in. Okay, you're welcome. All right, that's going to do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow, and I hope you will too. We are going to have a conversation about redefining and questioning beauty standards for women in 2019. We're going to have a really interesting conversation about how race in particular plays into those beauty standards and uh, how that may be changing uh, here in the beginning of the 21st century. Uh, I will be back tomorrow and I hope you will too. Uh, This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. It's always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. We'll talk again tomorrow.